As we come now to the scripture, I want you, please, if you would, to bow and to pray, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, it's amazing to us to have the very word of God before us. So we pray that you would give us eyes to see what's here, ears to hear your voice, God. That we may believe, and in our belief, that we may live in a way that is the way that you've intended for us to live as those who know you, those who glorify you, those who live in God. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with us even now. Use your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, please, and chapter 3. I want to read verses 6 through 13. 1 Thessalonians, please, and chapter 3. Forgive my voice this morning. Please hear the word of God. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, I always take a moment in the beginning of semesters as people are coming back and new people are joining us and all of that for the year, just to, to, to step back and just as a very brief sentence reminder that we, we stop in our worship services and read the Bible a lot. And then we come to these moments and we, we spend time in it. And we do that because we believe it's the word of God. We believe that here we find that which is true about God, that which is true about us, that which is true about our lives. And we believe that what's here is Guaranteed, really, to satisfy our deepest longings. And so we come with that kind of reverence and that kind of expectation as we come to the scripture. Now, what we find in this particular passage, especially as it begins in verse 11, which will occupy us those last couple of verses is that Paul, this apostle, is praying for a particular group of people. And this particular group of people is a people he met as he was traveling along as an apostle, that is, as one sent by Jesus to share this news that the kingdom of God had come in this one named Jesus, the very Son of God. So as Paul was traveling around, he went to a city called Thessalonica, and there he taught, and there many came to believe in Jesus. And so he's now away from them, 
and he's writing back to them. And and this isn't the first time he's prayed for them. In fact, this whole letter is about his praying to them. For instance, in chapter 1 and verse 2, he begins his, 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 his writing to them by saying, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. In other words, he's saying to them from the get-go, I pray for you all the time. I know that I'm no longer there with you, but I pray for you all the time. And his, his, his report of his praying is his prayers of thanksgiving for them. He's grateful to God for what God has brought into their lives. And so he says, uh, we, we constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's grateful, you see, that they're believers in Jesus. They have faith, and that faith is operating itself, showing itself in, in, in serving one another, in loving one another, and they're able to hold fast. They have this great hope because of this gospel of Jesus. So Paul's thankful. He's praying for them. And, he, and then in verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so he's grateful. He says, I'm so grateful to God that when we came with this word, you, you got it. You said, that's true. That's from God. And now that very word of God is at work in you. So Paul was grateful there. And then he's grateful for them. Verse 9 of chapter 3. He says, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? He says, says, You bring us great joy. And so we express that to God. We're thankful. But now Paul literally prays for them. Not just reporting of his prayers for them, but, but, but he stops as he's writing and he prays for them. And, and, and his prayers now move from thanksgiving to what we call petition. He's asking God for stuff. And he has two petitions. And each of these petitions has a purpose or a reason behind it. In other words, he's praying that particular position, p- petition. He's asking for that particular thing because of, uh, of something else. For instance, his first petition is in verse 11. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And so he's praying, God, please direct our way back to this church. He wants to get back there. So he's praying that. And the reason he's praying that, the reason he wants to get back there, is because of what we read in verse 10. He says, And as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul has in his mind that there is something lacking in their faith and that he then must be the one to go back there in order to supply that, to, to, to fill that in, if you will. And, and so he prays to God, get us back there. First petition. Second petition, his request is in verse 12. And may the Lord, reference to Jesus there, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So, so he's, he's praying for them that their love would increase. They'd become more loving to each other 
And for all, he says, for everybody, for, for not just Christians in Thessalonica, but Christians throughout the world. And not just Christians, but, but for everybody. And so he's praying that their love would increase. Now, the reason that he's praying that we find in verse 13. He says, so that, in other words, I'm praying that their love increase, so that, this is the reason I'm praying that, so that he that is God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his, his saints. He's saying, in order for you to be established, your hearts, to be established blameless in holiness when Jesus comes, You've got to increase in love. Two petitions. There's a reason for each one. Now it's interesting, and it's just kind of a little aside for just a moment, if you'll indulge me. Uh, but but it's, it's just fascinating uh, as to how Paul uh, addresses his prayers here. Really to whom he addresses his prayers here. Notice in verse 11. His first Request is addressed this way. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. So he's praying to both the Father and the Son. And uh, that's that they would, if you will, Father and Son would direct their way back. And then he prays, addresses his prayer. May the Lord, that is Jesus, make you increase and abound in love. Now, we don't know why he does that. So if you caught that and you're saying, I wonder why he does that, I can't help you. I don't know anybody who knows exactly. And it could be that when he's thinking of love, he's thinking of Jesus, and so he's going to be more specific. So, so may the Lord Jesus, who's the very manifestation of the love of God, may, may the Lord Jesus enable us, enable you to love. So I'm going to address his, this in this direction. But, but, but when he, we're talking about getting us back to you and, 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 and all of that, and overriding circumstances and even Satan, that I pray to the Father and the Son. We simply don't know. In fact, later in Second Thessalonians in chapter 3, he even reverses this order. And rather beginning, beginning with God the Father, he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. And he goes on like that. And so we, we, what's helpful here? I'm going to pause because I'm going to talk about a verb for a minute. All right, school has started, so verbs are free game. You see, in the summer, we don't talk about verbs, we don't talk, but, but now that school has begun, we got our verb hats on, so we're good with verbs now. We can talk about verbs. Now, what's fascinating here, and just a little, just helpful for us to see, is that the verb that Paul uses in his first request equates the Father and the Son. Meaning that in Paul's mind, he's recognized as he's praying to the Father and the Son that they're equal, that is, they're God. Because he uses a singular verb, not a plural verb. You see, when you're writing in Greek, as we all do, um, verbs have, 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 have singular and plural within them. So if you're writing this sentence... That Bill and Bob went to the store. In Greek, it would be Bill and Bob, they went to the store. Or if it was just Bob went to the store, it would be Bob, he went to the store. So what we would ha- expect here is the father and the son, they direct you. But Paul doesn't do it that way. 
He says, the Father and the Son, He directs you. Now, the reason that that's so helpful in this whole understanding of the deity of Jesus is that Paul isn't trying to teach us about the deity of Jesus. I mean, this isn't a passage where he's teaching about the person of Christ per se. This is just how he puts it because of what he knows to be true. In fact, in the fourth century, you'll like this. School started again, so we can talk about the fourth century, right? In the fourth century, there was a great controversy called a Christological controversy. That is, a controversy about the person of Jesus. There was a man named Arius who was running around, even writing hymns to this effect. Yeah, Arius running around, and Arius was saying that, that Jesus really isn't divine. And so, another man by the name of Athanasius, great father in the church, came and said, oh yes, he is. And so they duked it out for some decades. And in fact, Athanasius had to run at times for his life. Over this truth. But one of the passages that he would cite about the deity of Christ was this one. He said, Paul knew his grammar. And if he didn't believe that Jesus was equal to the Father, that Jesus was the divine Son of God, he would never have used a singular verb. See? important verbs are. Now now that we have that established. Um, So he directs his prayer to Father and Son. This first request is that God direct their way, that is Paul, Silas, and Timothy's way, back to the church in Thessalonica. Now why? Why did Paul want to go back? I've already hinted. Why did Paul want to go back? Surely he had a deep affection for them. He had founded the church. He was there when they first believed. But you remember what was difficult for Paul in this circumstance is that he was torn away from them. That is, that they had come to faith, he had seen evidence of it, uh, but but oppression happened, persecution happened. People who didn't believe came against the believers and Paul was forced to leave Thessalonica. He was forced to leave town. And he didn't want to, but he was forced really to leave and so he's had in the back of his mind, I didn't finish with them. There is more I want to tell them. Because you see, what he was afraid of, as we mentioned last Sunday, as he put it in the early verses of chapter 3, he was afraid that the tempter would come and tempt them. And he wondered always, do they know the gospel well enough? Do they know the truth well enough? Did they have enough time of learning to where they'll they'll really be able to persevere in the midst of the most difficult of times, in the most difficult of oppressions against them. That's his his concern. That that, that various ones would come to them and and put into their minds uh, questions like this, you know, if this gospel is so true, then, then, then why are you suffering the way you're suffering? If God loves you so much, why are you suffering the way you're suffering? Well, why doesn't he come and protect you? Why won't he protect your teacher? Why won't he protect Paul? This Paul who goes around and, and every time he preaches this gospel, he ends up in jail or running, getting run out of town. So, so why, if this gospel is true, why won't God protect you? And you've lost your job now that you're a believer in Jesus. And, 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 and so how are you going to feed your family now? And, and is this gospel 
really, really worth it. And, and you're, some of your friends have turned away from you. And some in your family have turned away from you because of this. Is, is this gospel really worth it? And Paul's wondering about them. And he's thinking, do they have enough in order to continue to continue to persevere? And thus he wants them to grow in the faith. And so he says, I want to come back and I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, that little word supply is, is used in a, another context in the scripture about fishermen mending their nets. Uh, the point is that when a fisherman has a hole in his net, the net won't be very good for fishing because he puts the f- net out and the fish won't get caught. And so the fisherman says, my nets aren't ready. I got to make them ready. So Paul is wondering for them is, are they ready? If we put them in the midst of this persecution, we put them in the midst of this situation, are they ready for that? It's sort of like a teacher who tells his students that, 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 that you're not ready for the test yet. You need two more classes and then you'll be ready for the test. So if they take the test without having attended the classes, the teacher is going to think, oh no, they're not ready. Or a coach that says, we need two more practices before the game. And they don't have those practices, then he's worried the whole time. Oh, they're going to, they're not going to be ready for this game, you see. Well, the pastor looks at the young couple wanting to get married and he says, you need 18 years of premarital counseling. <laughs> Are you ready, you know, for this? And so Paul says, I've been wondering ever since I left. Are you ready? Are you really ready for this? So what I want to do is I want to come back and I want to supply what I want to make you ready. That's really what he's saying here. Now, now what this tells us, of course, as we, as we noticed last Sunday, just by way of review, that this shows us the very power of the word of God. Because you see, Paul wasn't saying, you need my personality back in Thessalonica or, or you're not going to be ready. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to come back and we'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll just have some fun together. We'll enjoy some time together. We'll, we'll... No, 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 no. He had a purpose. When he went back, he was going back with the word of God. And he says, because this is what will mend you. This, this will, what will, will make you ready. If you know this word of God, you'll be ready to stand in any situation, in any circumstance. That's why he would write to the church in Rome this in Romans in chapter 10 and verse 17. He writes, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. He says, listen, this word of God brings faith to you. It strengthens faith because it brings you the truth. Because you see, we live in the midst of lies. The world tells us lies. Quite frankly, we tell ourselves lies. And so he says, so this truth must come to you, this word of Christ, this gospel. And when this gospel comes, you see, it's what's necessary to bring faith, to strengthen faith, because this is what is true. This is what you must believe. So he wants to bring to them this word because he knows that if he does, they'll be ready. The author of Hebrews speaks of this word like this in Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 12. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This, this word of God is alive. It's powerful, you see. And Paul says, I've got to bring this living word and I have to speak it to you in such a way that it will go by the Spirit into your, into your heart, the very core of your being, you see, so that you'll be ready to withstand anything. And so whatever comes against you, whatever lie comes against you, whatever difficulty comes against you that, that causes you to even lie to yourself and think that which isn't true, this truth will rise up within you and will save you because you'll be ready. Peter, the apostle, speaks of this word like this in First Peter in chapter 1. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This word of God, it's it's like a seed, but not a perishable seed when they're just sort of dying away. It's an imperishable seed. It will get planted and it will stay there. And it will grow, you see. In fact, so much so that this is the very seed of eternal life, life with God. This word. So Paul's saying, you know, I don't think you're ready. And so, 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 so I'm going to come back and I'm going to mend you. And, and what I'm going to mend you with, what I'm going to make you ready with, is this word of God. So that you'll be ready to withstand. Because this word of God brings faith. This word of God is alive. This word of God is, is an imperishable seed. And he goes on to say, all flesh is like grass and All its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord remains forever. This is a permanent thing in your heart. This is the thing that will ground you. This is the thing that will keep you. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, you see. And, and, And Paul knows that it takes another human being who knows this word to take this word and to speak it. That's how God has designed this. That we need each other. And so Paul says, I love you, therefore I'll go. Again, the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews in chapter 3 speaks of this need for one another. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, by the lies that come. For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession firm to the end. Paul's saying, I know what's necessary for Christians to hold their original confession. That time when they first said, I believe. He says, I know what it takes for Christians to hold that original confession. What it takes is the word of God. Continually being applied. 
continually being spoken, continually being heard, continually being received. And so the author of Hebrews says we need each other to do that all the time. As long as it's called today. So you look at your watch, it's still today. You look at it again, it's still today. You look at it again, oh my goodness, it's still today. But then it's tomorrow. No, it's not. Because it becomes today. Right? And so, there we have it. How often do we do this? Well, all the time. How often do we need this? Well, all the time, you see. And that's, we need one another for this. So Paul says, I love you. I'm concerned. I need to go. And I need to supply, mend, make ready your your faith. Because you see, what was most important in Paul's life for himself and for those he loved was that we stand firm or fast in the Lord out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, for now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord or standing firm in the Lord. That was the most important thing. It would have been nice, I'm sure, for Paul if he had heard that the persecution against them had stopped. He would have said, that's great. But are you holding fast to the faith? Or if he had heard that the persecution hadn't stopped, he probably would have said, I'm really sorry. But are you holding fast in the faith? If he had heard they're prosperous financially, he would have probably said, that's great. But are you holding fast to the faith? If he had heard that they've lost their jobs and they're struggling financially, he would have said, I'm really sorry. But are you holding fast to the faith? I'm sure if they'd come and said, we're in great health, he would have said, that's great. But are you holding fast to the faith? And if they came to him and said, we're beaten all the time, within an inch of our lives, he would have said, I'm really sorry. But are you holding fast to the faith? That's what he was concerned about, you see. See, whatever concerns us, we then arrange our lives around that thing. So if our material possessions are our primary concern, our financial well-being is our primary concern, we'll arrange our lives around our financial well-being. If our health is our primary concern, then we'll arrange our lives around our health. If our social status, our popularity, our friendship, if that's what's most important to us, we'll arrange our lives around that. And those aren't bad things, obviously. But the center of our very desire should be ours and others' spiritual well-being. Are we holding fast to the faith? We just had this 25-year celebration of grace. And the great delight of it was seeing people who had left and come back and to realize they're still standing firm in the faith. That was the delight of it. And the delight for them was coming back and seeing us and saying, you're still here too. You still believe. That was the, oh, we shared all kinds of wonderful things together. We enjoyed company on various levels and ways. But, but, but the real joy of it, in fact, in my mind, Continue to think of all the people I haven't heard from or haven't heard about over all the years. And I wonder, are they holding fast to the faith? 
It's really all I care about. I have all other things, but, but, but that's the guts of it, you see. And for you, what, what do you care about in your own life? What do you care about for your kids? Of all the things that be true about them, raising them up to be socially acceptable, which we all want to do, you know. <laughs> raising them up to be well-educated. Raising them up to have good health. Raising them up to be able to make a living. All of that. We, 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 that's, but what's the guts of it, really? What are we really concerned about for our kids? And so what do we arrange our lives around so that their lives are arranged around being firm in the faith? What about for your husband? What's your concern for him? What about your wife? What's your concern for her? What about your parents? What's your concern for them? What about your friends? What's your concern for them? What about the world in which we live? Well, there are all kinds of needs and we must be about them. But the primary need, the primary consideration, the thing that drove this apostle, the thing that drove him to want to go back, the thing that drove him in his own life was to be fast, firm in the faith. In fact, Paul describes his own life like this in Philippians in chapter 3. He says that, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying, I'm willing to, to suffer the loss of whatever I need to suffer the loss of. Because the most important thing for me is that I hold fast to Christ. I'm willing to suffer if that's what it takes. Because the most important thing for me is to hold fast to Christ. And that was his heart for them. So that's why he prayed. Direct me back. So that I can supply what is lacking in their faith. Paul's second petition we find in verse 12. And he prays, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now, uh, Paul prays this for them, not because they weren't loving. In fact, if you didn't have this particular sentence in this letter, you would think that the church in Thessalonica was the most loving church that has ever been. Because Paul speaks about their love all the time. He opened up, as I mentioned earlier, that, that um, uh, as he gave thanks for them, one of the things he gave thanks for was their labor of love. Now, by that expression, what he means is, your love isn't just one of talk. You just don't say you love one another, but you actually sacrifice for the well-being of each other. I've seen it. You sacrifice for each other. It's a labor. It's an effort. It's a work at it. You do stuff. For one another, you sacrifice your convenience and your stuff and, and, and your time for each other. That's the expression of love. It's a labor of love. A wonderful, a wonderful thing. And then in chapter 3 and verse 6, after Paul had sent Timothy to Thessalonica to check on them, he came back with this report, Paul writes. 
But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and so forth. He says, what I, what I hear from Timothy is that, is that you're loving one another. That's great. And then in chapter 4, even after this prayer, verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So he says, not only is it just local, you're doing this throughout all of Macedonia, everywhere in, in your whole area. You're loving people. You're loving other believers. But then he goes on and he says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And so, so even though they're the most loving church we could ever imagine, he's saying, I want God to enable you to increase in your love for one another and for everybody. Now, isn't that a bit like piling on? I mean, don't you think Paul would have said, well, you're really good at loving, so we can check that box and move on to the next thing. But he doesn't. He says, he's got to do this more. Why? Because you see, love, real love is never exhausted. Love, real love is, is never something that we get good enough at that we don't need even more. And because you see, love, real love is the very essence of godliness. So much so that when Jesus was with his disciples, you remember, on the night that he was betrayed, he told them, that what would define them as his disciples was if they loved the way he loved. You remember, a new commandment, Jesus said, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul said, listen, that's the thing, as Francis Schaeffer wrote in a little essay, that's the mark of the Christian, love. If you don't love, he said, no one will ever know that you're my disciple. And in fact, I wonder if you actually are, if you don't love. Later that same evening, Jesus said this to them, this is my commandment that you love one another, as I've loved you, greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's the love of Jesus, of course. He even took it a step further. He loved us, laid down his life, even when we were his enemies. We'd become his friends. That's why our love has to increase. Who loves like that, really? And then he goes on to say, these things I command you so that you will love one another. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome... Of these matters, he wrote like this, Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You see, committing adultery is unloving, isn't it? Being unfaithful. See, sexual immorality is unloving. It's unloving. To the person you include. It isn't thinking 
of their best interests. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Respect life. Murder is the extreme, if you will, in this case, of not respecting life, of not loving. You shall not steal. If you take that which is someone else's doesn't belong to you, that isn't loving. You shall not covet, desiring what someone else has, rather than being happy that they have it. That's not loving. And he says, and any other commandment are summed up in this, in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And of course, he goes on. The scripture does. Through the apostle John. And John lays out then, applies that which Jesus had taught on this night that he was betrayed. That John includes in his gospel. And he said this in 1 John chapter 3 verse 11. He says, well, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, but rather love one another. And then in verse 23, he puts it like this. And this is his commandment that we love one another, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. Then he puts it like this in chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he's loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has loved us we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. We love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This very love of God. Paul prays that it would in fact increase. But not simply for other believers but also for all people. This expression would to love our neighbor as ourselves. You remember when Jesus was asked the question, who is my neighbor? And he told a scandalous story. And we call it the parable of the good Samaritan, but it was scandalous, you see, because Jesus tells a story about this man who was beaten up and laying by the road, and some religious people walked by and didn't help him. But then a Samaritan walked by and did help him. Now, the reason that was scandalous is because the people to whom Jesus was telling the story hated, ethnically speaking, hated Samaritans. And so they found themselves, even while Jesus was telling the story, hating their neighbor. And then Jesus turned it on them and said, you need to love like Samaritans love. Love like that. Now, the reason that Paul prays that they would love like that isn't because they hadn't been loving, they had. And certainly there's a certain measure of of, of practical benefit to them. If you're in a community being persecuted, then you need to love each other. Because who else do you have? I mean, you have to take care of each other. And so it's a very practical thing at that point. But see, Paul was even saying you need to love your enemies. Those who persecute you. Because you see, when you love your enemies... They can never defeat you. 
So he says, and to increase in this kind of love. And the reason that he prays that is so that God may establish their hearts blameless in holiness when Jesus comes back. What's that mean? To establish means to make permanent. That is to make this faith permanent. To make this belonging to Jesus permanent. To establish their hearts. Now the heart is the very essence of a human being. It's, it's the very core, a very guts out of which we make decisions. Out of which we live, you see. So establish their very hearts. It's not just an outward thing, but an inward thing. And establish hearts blameless, that is not guilty, blameless in holiness. Holiness, what's that? When the Bible uses the term holiness, it means to be set apart for God by God. To be holy. So Paul's saying, if your love increases, if you grow in love, then... It means that there's a sense in which you're grounded in the very things of God. And everyone will know that you belong to him. And so when Jesus comes back, there won't be any question. Why? Because you've been established your heart in love. What this means is, and husbands are to love their wives in such a way that everybody knows that they belong to Jesus. That wives are to love their husbands in such a way that everybody knows that she belongs to Jesus. Children are to love their parents in such a way that everybody knows that that child belongs to Jesus. Parents are to love their children in such a way that everybody knows that that mom and dad belongs to Jesus. Friends are to love their friends in such a way that everyone knows that that friend belongs to Jesus. The church is to love those within and out in such a way that everyone knows that that church belongs to Jesus. Christians are to love their enemies in such a way that everyone knows that that person belongs to Jesus, you see. And this love isn't just simply a love of the mouth, it's a love of the heart. It isn't just an outward action, but it comes from within. It's a love that forgives. It's a love that is patient. It's a love that is kind. It's a love that is peaceful. It's a love that doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's a love that isn't rude, you see. It's a love that isn't boastful. It's a love that isn't arrogant. It's a love that's humble and gentle and compassionate and merciful. It's that kind of love. It's a love that gives of itself over and over and over again. He says, you see, an increase in that, it means that your heart has been established by God through Jesus. Because the only one who can establish it's like that is the very indwelling Son of God, the very manifestation of the love of God, and He in us, you see. And that's how it happens. 
You say, well, really, is that how it happens? And you say, yeah, yeah, for them, it would happen at their, at their conversion. Remember from chapter 1 and verse, middle of verse 9, Paul wrote of how they turned to God from idols, that is, from trusting everything else, from trusting themselves, from their own selfishness, and their own self-interest, to, to, to turning to God to serve Him, you see. And it's the will of God, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians Verse 3 says that that the will of God is your sanctification, that is, your holiness. And indeed, Paul ends this letter by giving them this confidence. Verse 23 of chapter 5. And now may the peace of God himself sanctify, that is, make you holy completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at his coming At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So that's why Paul prayed. Because he knew he was powerless. Because only God can change the heart. And so he prayed that their love would increase. So that their hearts would be established, blameless. In holiness. What's next? Let's pray. Father. In the beginning of our service this morning. We confessed our sins that we haven't loved as we ought. So just in case. We missed that part. pray for us that you would forgive us for not loving as we ought. But I pray in the name of Jesus that you would forgive us and that you would cause then by the very presence of Jesus in us our love to increase and abound more and more for one another and for all so that you may establish our hearts blameless in holiness. That when Jesus returns, there would be no doubt that we belong to him. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring your word to us over and over that establishes our hearts in this love of Christ and that out then from us to our husbands to our wives to our children to our parents to our friends to our enemies that this love of Christ would be manifest and that all that could be said of us is that he, she, they belong to Jesus And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.